Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. So since it's apparently very much the rage now to go back and amend your previous testimony, anything that we've said on previous podcasts anyone would like to change? I stand by everything I've ever said. <laughs> I would like to revise and extend my remarks and report that I have always been right about every prediction I have made on this show. That's good. That's good. I take back everything I've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> Except what has already been reported and published in exactly. the newspaper. <laughs> exactly. Even the bands. You, you know, actually, the there's some bad names I would definitely. Okay, yeah. I recommend that I would take back some bad names. Definitely, but everything else I stand by. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security. The wait, did I say no quid pro quo edition? I meant pro quid. I meant pro, pro quid pro quo. Oh, that quid pro quo. <laughs> yes. That definitely happened. Oh, I thought you were talking about a different quid Sorry. pro quo. We're on the same page now. Definitely. <laughs> totally a quid pro quo. Thanks. Thank you for not charging me with perjury. Uh, I'm Shane Harris. I've yet to perjure myself. Never done anything under oath. Never it's good. Under oath. That's it's good. Let's keep it that <laughs> yeah. way, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> definitely. I, I, I've been thinking about how members of Congress always get to revise their remarks because mm-hmm. they don't actually make their remarks on the floor usually. They just sort of put a marker in there and then they can insert their remarks later. Yeah. And that's kind of what Gordon Sunland was doing. That's kind of what he just was doing. Just behaving like a member of Congress. <laughs> Y'all we, get to do it. Why not I guess me? in fairness, journalists get to update stories. Yeah, but that's, that's usually true. like not seen as a. Great and you thing get a little footnote that it was updated. Yes, and if a correction is bad, that means yeah. you screwed up. <laughs> Did Sunland have like correction at the appended <laughs> to his testimony? He kind of. When does. I said no quid pro quo, I meant quid pro quo. <laughs> don't don't quid pro quo. <laughs> I am here in the new jungle studio with Tamara Coffinwinis and Margaret Taylor. Hi guys. Hi. Hi Shane. Ben and Susan are off. What are they doing? They are recording their audiobook. Audiobook. So if you listen to the Lawfare podcast or the report or Rational Security and you enjoy Ben and Susan's voices, you will get to hear them reading their book on making the presidency. Right. And I asked them, like, are you going to do, like, one sentence for one person and one sentence for the other? Like, is it like <laughs> that? Dramatic reading? Yeah. Is it dialogue? No, no. It's, like, chapter by chapter, apparently. Oh, chapter apparently. by chapter. So, okay. Yeah, so if you get bored with Ben's voice, you'll get Susan's voice. When Ben reads, like, on the report, is there, like, that cool music in the background? <laughs> <laughs> that should just be Ben's music for the rest of his life. Exactly. Everywhere he goes. <laughs> personal soundtrack. As usual, Ben Wittes is reading from or paraphrasing his book. On the podcast this week, a key witness, that would be Gordon Sondland, you remember him, and the impeachment investigation changes his testimony. Well, amends, really. Modifies? Amplifies. <laughs> Clarifies. Clarifies? Augments. Re- reverses? Augmentifies. Contradicts. <laughs> Significant revision, I think is how the language we settled on. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was under fire for his leadership of U.S. diplomacy, and the House lays out the rules for the public phase of the impeachment process. Um, so, Margaret, let's talk about our friend Ambassador Sunland. Uh, obviously, a significant revision that he submitted on Monday and was published on Tuesday to his testimony from three weeks earlier before the House impeachment investigators. He now says that he did tell a Ukrainian official that security assistance to the country would likely would be likely to resume only if authorities in Kiev 
open the investigations that Trump wanted and that could be damaging to Joe Biden. So just to be clear, he is now saying, okay, yes, I did communicate to a senior advisor to the president of Ukraine that unless you do these investigations, you're probably not getting the money. So generally that's that there's your quit, there's your quo. Um, how significant is this revision to our overall understanding, do you think, of, of the narrative as it's been you know, kind of revealed in news reports and in testimony over the past month? I think it is quite significant because it does show this key person who is like a Trump person in a position to know that he knew essentially that there was a quid pro quo. He communicated it to a high-level advisor to President Zelensky. So that's that's one sort of piece of it. The second piece is sort of how this looks for for Gordon Sunland and for this whole story of, you know, going up and, you know, giving a deposition to these House committees on October 8th. And we, we just got the, the sort of full transcript of that deposition. And so, you know, you out there, all of our listeners can read it, just sort of reading through it. And then, you know, this idea that he, you know, later reviews the uh, opening statements of Bill Taylor, the charge who was involved, and also Tim Morrison, an NSC official, and, and those statements sort of refresh his recollection about a <laughs> very specific conversation right. that Gordon Sondland had with Yermak, yeah. the Zelensky advisor, and then recounted right. to, to uh, Tim Morrison. And so it's all very, very specific. And the idea that Gordon Sondland just sort of forgot about all that when he came up and was deposed, it's just, it's so difficult to believe yeah. And so and and I'll say one more thing, which is that in reading this uh, sort of up, it's a declaration, I guess, is really what it is, sort of updating the testimony. It's not actually sort of a, a deposition back and forth. It's sort of these statements. I'm still left with a dissatisfaction of knowing what Gordon Sunland actually knew, who told him there was a quid pro quo, because it's very vague, even in this updated you know, declaration that's now sort of appended to his uh, deposition testimony. Yeah, I think one of the things that remains opaque is when and on what Gordon Sunland communicated directly with the president about all of this. So clearly now we can see from this particular revision of the testimony that he was reticent in what he told the committees. And he was reticent about this and was forced to clarify because others testified to things that he had tried to hide, basically. And, you know, what else has he tried to hide? And I expect that some of that is conversations he had with the president in which the president told him precisely what his intentions were. We know he had conversations with the president. It's mentioned in the exchanges of text messages that he had with Kurt Volker and Bill Taylor. It's mentioned in other depositions. And so, you know, can they drill down on that as well? What did the president know and when did he know it? In other words, is a piece of this that's missing. We have, in addition to the corroboration of this conversation with the Ukrainians about the, you know, pay for play, um, basically the aid in exchange for an investigation, we also have two witnesses, Bill Taylor and and the NSC official, Tim Morrison, uh, Tim Morrison yeah. testifying to the interagency meeting at which an OMB official said the president had directed the OMB to hold this money. So if Sunland has confirmation of that, 
you know, from a conversation with the president. That is really crucial. Um, So I kind of hope that they call him back and call him out on the carpet and not let this be the sole revision and extension, if you will, of his remarks. I think the other thing that really came through to me as these transcripts have been released this week, and by the way, kudos to the committee staffs and the committees for getting these out so quickly, actually, so that we can all see the the richness of detail that is coming out on this narrative now. But the other piece that's become clear, I think, is Kurt Volker's role. If you look at his deposition transcript, you know, what you see is a guy who has very clear, strong views on Ukraine policy that are consistent with what has been the policy of the administration, that are consistent with Bill Taylor's, the professional foreign service, the official stated policy. And yet he is confronted directly with this Giuliani-driven campaign. And in his deposition, he's trying to somehow suggest that he just understood this as a Giuliani thing and not, you know, Giuliani acting on his own somehow, not as the president's lawyer, not on behalf of the president, not at the behest of the president. And and that's just not plausible, <laughs> given everything else we know about Giuliani's role in his communications and the fact that Volcker himself spoke to Giuliani and Pompeo spoke to Giuliani, you know. And then Volker also tries to claim that he didn't understand that Burisma was about Joe Biden. And I think that, you know, that's also hard to credit. So I think part of what comes out with the release of these transcripts is our own ability to assess the credibility and character of each of these witnesses. And and I thought, I mean, look, we understand that people can compartmentalize, right? Uh, and sometimes in the conduct of diplomacy and foreign policy, you do a fair amount of that. But Tammy, I'm with you on this. It's just reading the way that Volcker was saying, well, I understood that I was off doing, you know, asking for an investigation of Burisma, but I didn't connect that to Biden. I mean, A, that just seems so wildly implausible. And I think Gordon Sunland, in fact, tried to assert some of the same things yes. and people also understood yeah, that like, to be come on, guys. like, you know, come on, not, you know, quick, get real. But also, I mean, as, as I read Volcker's testimony, maybe you guys can react to this too if you saw it the same way. He he says that later he becomes aware, right, that this is driven by political um, motives to investigate Biden. And it's almost as if it struck me as saying like, well, later I realized that I was a tool in a corrupt purpose, but I had no indication of it at the time. But I'm like now looking at saying, but do you now understand that the entire thing was corrupt? And if so, like why do you keep trying to compartmentalize right. it? It sort of felt like he was trying to – I thought kind of like walk a line between <clears throat> on the one hand not disavowing what he has been, had been doing uh, and on the other hand, trying to somehow excuse it, it just—it just—it was very confusing to me what his logic was that he was applying here, and it kind of came across as somebody who was essentially trying to stay as much as he could still on sides with the administration. Right, and I think it's important to remember in this context, Kurt Volker, although he had a career as a civil servant in the State Department. This role was a political appointment after his retirement from government service. And so he was appointed by the president. (laughs) He was a political appointee. And even though he has the culture and the history and the grounding in ethical practices that come from a career in the State Department, he's now presented with a situation where his ability to further the Ukraine policy that he clearly, I think, sincerely believed 
was in American interests, which is to support the Ukrainians in their confrontation with Russia. The only way he has to further that is by staying on side with the president, as you put it, Shane. And, you know, and so the question is, like, at what point did he understand that those two things were in conflict? Did he really not understand it at the point at which the Ukrainians are coming to him and saying, we feel like we're under a lot of pressure to do you know, these specific things at the point at which he is drafting a statement with Gordon Sunland for the Ukrainian president to read, you know. Which and he wants to check with Rudy first. Which which he yeah. wants to check with Rudy first. And at the point at which he's advising the Ukrainians don't succumb to political pressure. <laughs> like, why didn't he take that advice himself? <laughs> you know, if that's the advice he's giving them, how does he not understand his own position? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that just stepping back and looking at it, I think the reason that Volcker and Sunlin are having a hard time telling their story is because it's not a very defensible story when you really put it all together. You know, I, I do think on some level, folks thought that they were pursuing a genuine policy and maybe doing it for for so the right reasons in that respect. But, you know, there just had to be a moment, and I can't imagine it took too long to figure it out, the the sort of full picture of what was going on. You know, I, I do contrast that with somebody like Marie Ivanovich, who, you know, in reading her testimony, it's clear, like, she didn't have the full picture of what was going on. In fact, she's sort of like, that was one of her difficulties out there. She was just like, I didn't understand what Giuliani was saying to people. I didn't understand what Lev Parnas and Fruman were doing in country. I didn't understand exactly what was, what was happening back in the conversations back in the White House. I didn't understand what was happening conversations on the seventh floor of the State Department. And so, by the way, that is a very common problem for career foreign service officers in the field is that there's stuff going on back in Washington that they don't have visibility into. So that's a familiar problem for them. Right. And it's sort of like, you know, some of the players in this story only have their hand on one part of the elephant. Mm -hmm. So they can't quite tell what's happening. But it kind of feels like Volcker and Sondland had the whole picture. Two they the saw the whole elephant. Yeah. And so it's sort of like that. that's what's, in, in my view, making their stories hard for them to defend in a way that is logical and rational to people who are, are just trying to understand facts. Total, totally agree. And look, even if you were to take even if you were to sort of to say, OK, Sunland maybe doesn't have a lot of experience. Well, he had no experience in diplomacy, you know, but Volcker did. Now, I actually think that Sunland has enough experience in, you know, Life. The world and life to know that <clears throat> when the president's lawyer, who, by the way, I'm sorry, you can't turn on a television set and not see the man, right. and is out there talking about they're Ukraine. They're too busy to watch television. <laughs> they're out there executing policy. I mean, anybody would understand that that is unorthodox, right? Volker certainly understands how these things are supposed to work. And it, the passages that I found so compelling and persuasive of exactly what you both are saying are these moments when Rudy not only comes in, but it is abundantly clear to Sunderland and Volker and Rick Perry, who fills out the so-called Three Amigos, that Rudy is driving the chain. And if they need, had any ambiguity about that, the president tells this to them in May before any of this really gets rolling when they've come back from meeting the newly elected president Zelensky in Ukraine. The three of them are feeling really optimistic and good 
uh, about the future of U.S. relations, and the president is just ranting and raving, according to Sondland, right, about he's Ukraine. crapping all over it. Right, who yeah. he's never trusted, which goes back to this this fixation that he has that the Ukrainians, you know, tried to do him wrong in the 2016 election, and it probably goes back to something even before that from real estate days. But, but you know, it says, essentially, I don't want to deal with this, just talk to Rudy. I mean, from that moment... It is very clear that you have a president who's fixating on a conspiracy theory, let's be clear, that is completely at odds with all U.S. intelligence assessments of what happened and is saying, talk to my personal lawyer about Ukraine. I mean, it seems to me like that is the moment where people might have said, something ain't right here. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. kind of – and that happens at the beginning, not halfway through or at I the think end. that's a good point, Shannon. So you're kind of left with, OK, what was their calculation? You know, if I'm – if I'm Kurt Volker and I believe in supporting Ukraine and I'm upset that the president, you know, doesn't seem to agree with me and I'm trying to persuade him, right? Do I look at this deeply inappropriate, corrupt political ask, you know, that comes to me via Rudy Giuliani on behalf of the president? Do I look at this and say, okay, well, maybe this is just the hoop we have to jump through to get the president on board? And that so I sort of downgrade the nature of the concern? Maybe that's maybe that's the explanation is they thought, well, let's just get through this and then we'll have the policy where we need it to be and the ends justify the means. Instead of thinking, you know, I took an oath and I'm here to serve the American national interest and I'm being asked to do something that is not that. And it, it does show people tying themselves in knots trying to manage a president who's obsessed with a conspiracy theory. And that's not an easy thing to do. Right. No, it's also terrifying right. that that's what they were in the position of having to do. Right. And I feel like this is, I mean, you see it coming in the transcripts. I just have to think that, it, that there's a high potential that this is going to make for very dramatic testimony when these people appear. And we now know they're going to start appearing next week on Wednesday and Thursday. And, and you know, and we know from our own reporting, too, that behind closed doors, Republicans have been driving out these theories about Ukraine and the rest of it. I do wonder if once this is on display, what the broader public is going to make of this, right? Because people are clearly so divided in their camps about what all this means. And I wonder, I mean, you guys, just because of final thoughts as we wrap up this section, do you think that the hearings are going to be more, and we'll get to this in the third segment, too, on process, more illuminating or just kind of harden people in the camps where they already are? I have concerns that it will be the latter. I think this will be a real challenge for uh, Adam Schiff, who will be the chairman of these initial set of, of hearings. It's clear that Republicans, um, Kevin McCarthy, the uh, the leader of the Republicans in the House, is looking to put Jim Jordan, who has been, you know, kind of an attack dog in these types of hearings, defending the president very vocally, actually putting him on uh, the House Intelligence Committee, which he's not currently on, for the purpose of having him at these public hearings to be an attack dog. Not a great co vote of confidence for Devin Nunes. <laughs> right. And, you know, apparently... <laughs> Poor well. Devin. Well, Aww. he apparently, Devin Nunes, the plan is that he will stay, but Jim Jordan will also be there. You can as, sit in the corner <laughs> and color and ask one question. <laughs> right. As potentially also Mark Meadows. Right. Um, and so that means taking some people off of the committee and putting these two people on. Uh, so it's, you know, it's already getting geared up to be kind of, you know, a bit of an attack dog circus type thing. Um, so I, I do have concerns about it kind of turning out that way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about another player who seems to be kind of omnipresent and yet 
unspoken and definitely unseen <laughs> in, in, in this great drama. Quo Vadis. <laughs> One Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Um, I'm just going to read briefly here from a column from my colleague David Ignatius who writes today, since the investigation began into President Trump's machinations in Ukraine, one of the most disturbing questions has been, where is Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, who's supposed to shield his diplomats from political interference? And now we have the answer. Pompeo in recent months has essentially been in hiding, protecting himself while subordinates took the hit. Tammy, this is a devastating column. <clears throat> I think that he articulates a lot of the questions and the concerns about where Pompeo has been and what he has been doing as we've seen these senior U.S. diplomats, both career and appointed, come forward and tell their story. Yeah. So Mike Pompeo got to become the Secretary of State by being the member of the cabinet who, on the one hand, seemed to have the most, I hate this word, gravitas when it came to substantive policy issues, while at the same time being seen as boundlessly uh, supportive of the president. So he never kind of went out and said or did crazy or foolish things. He always seemed sober and substantive, but was always shoulder to shoulder, no daylight with the president. And that's how he got to be Secretary of State. And what we see now, and I have to say, it's not only what has come out of this investigation of the Ukraine corruption scandal, but other things that have come out in recent months about Pompeo's tenure at the State Department make clear that that approach has resulted in further damage to our diplomatic uh, institution, which was already horrifically damaged by his predecessor, Rex Tillerson, as Secretary of State, and, you know, as well as the unfortunate engagement of American diplomacy in a corrupt scheme, which is what's being revealed by the impeachment investigation. So, you know, it's not only that Pompeo spoke to Giuliani's. Pompeo knew exactly what these demands were. Pompeo apparently, if not actively, passively endorsed uh, Giuliani's efforts to draw in American ambassadors who serve on, under Pompeo's authority to this scheme. You know, Volcker clearly had some back and forth with Pompeo on this and never got a yellow light or a red light. We don't know if he got a green light. But in addition to all of that, in addition to Pompeo's evident failure to support the diplomatic corps in the face of these horrific, baseless public attacks against the ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Ivanovich, and all the morale problems. On top of that, he has had an, a State Department inspector general report come out demonstrating that his political appointee, assistant secretary for international organizations, undertook entirely improper um, political retaliation against employees of the bureau who were seen as insufficiently loyal. And Pompeo refused to meet with the employees of the bureau about that report and refused to fire the guy. He is still there supervising these employees that an IG report says he abused. In addition to that, there's an ongoing IG investigation of Brian Hook, the special envoy for Iran, who was one of, you know, was there under Rex Tillerson and retained under Mike Pompeo for also improper retaliation against staff. And we don't have the details because the report's not out yet. 
And we have the fact that even after Pompeo refused to defend Yovanovitch, refused to even issue a public statement in general support of the professional diplomatic corps, when Yovanovitch got yanked and came back to Washington and asked to meet with him or his counselor, the counselor to the State Department, she couldn't even get that. Like they couldn't even do the basic courtesy of Mike Pompeo having the guts to sit down with her face to face and tell her, I'm sorry, I couldn't protect you from the president, or even, I'm sorry, I wasn't willing to protect you from the president. And so it's not just the lack of character evidenced in this failure of leadership. It's also the cowardice evidenced in the way in which he's carried it out. And just to to sort of tie that into the deposition testimony that was released this week, you know, it's so you you see it so vividly, particularly in uh, Michael McKinley's testimony. You know, he is a 37 year veteran of the Department Foreign Service Officer. He's, you know, 65 years old, lots of experience. And he although he's not sort of tied in directly to the Ukraine sort of machinations directly, what he provides is this sort of bird's eye view of sort of what Mike Pompeo is doing and not doing in this as this whole thing is unfolding. And it's, in my opinion, very devastating uh, for Pompeo. I mean, to your point, Tammy, you know, McKinley goes, he basically says, you know, look, I I quit because, you know, the, the failure of the department to offer support to officials caught up in this impeachment inquiry. You know, he quit because what appeared to be utilization of foreign ambassadors to advance domestic domestic political objectives, and this failure to protect Yovanovitch. And the backdrop of that is this Kevin Moley uh, failure to act on on Kevin Moley, the Assistant Secretary for International Organizations, even after that devastating Inspector General report came out. So that's the backdrop for McKinley. The the building is suffering morale-wise. Then this Ivanovich thing happens, no support for her either. And he basically says, I'm done. This is ridiculous. And I'm done. And um, just to be kind of like very vivid about it in his testimony, McKinley says, I said to Pompeo three times, we should issue a statement in support of Ivanovich. And it was like, Pompeo was just like in receive mode. It was just mm-hmm. like a blank. It wasn't like a no, we're not going to do that or response. It was just like a blank. And then nothing ever happened. And so you see this just sort of blankness. Um, and, and same in the Ivanovich uh, deposition. Pompeo, he's just absent. And he never speaks with her, not once. I mean, it's really extraordinary to think right. that she I'm- could be removed in those circumstances. And the Secretary of State doesn't call you on the phone. I mean, it's it's just it's devastating when you think about how the State Department, you know, sort of traditionally has worked. Well, how any organization would work, you know, for any organization that has a hierarchy with a boss and employees, you know, Sometimes bosses have to fire people not because those people are doing a bad job, but because revenues are down or, you know, the board demands it or whatever. You know, just take responsibility for your own decisions. And that is just a basic, basic rule of leadership. This guy, you know, graduated from a military academy. He was an officer. These are basic leadership lessons. Did he not learn that stuff? Or, you know, is this for the sake of his own political expediency because he's so desperate for the president's support for a future, you know, senatorial run or other ambitions? Or is it that he's so afraid of what the president might do to him 
in which case, actually, the whole State Department should be terrified, right? Uh, but, you know, I, I think no matter what your conclusions are, it is so stark, as, as you said, Margaret, it, there's really just no way to excuse it. You know, and it, it, Pompeo got a lot of criticism. We've talked about this in the podcast before when he came in for this sort of loyalty pledge. I think he even called it effectively that, that he wanted State Department officials to swear to. Uh, and I think there was obviously – Did he call it that? I mean it's like it was, a – It, was, it, was, it wasn't a exactly called that. Principles. Statement of principles. It's up it was on clearly, the wall. Yeah, it was up it on the wall. There was a big to-do about it. And a lot of people objected to this saying, you know, look, we, we take an oath to protect the Constitution. This sounds like you want us to take an oath to protect a president and to be loyal to a president. And I think that one of the things that this impeachment inquiry has helped maybe bring into relief for people is that, you know, these diplomats, you know, they're not trying to be political obstacles. In fact, they are trying to carry out a policy in the case of Ivanovich saying, like, I am confused about what the policy is. I, you know, I'm here to try and carry that out. But I think that what this has also shown is that a lot of people, you know, I think in the beginning when Pompeo comes into the State Department, there's obviously a lot of reservation that by loyalty he means loyalty to the president. It seems like that is being borne out in these statements insofar as, you know, he's not even doing the basic things to defend these people. And it does leave, Tammy, I think people with the question of like, but to what end is he working here, right? It's not that Mike Pompeo is afraid to argue with people. Mike Pompeo loves arguing with people. He loves to argue with the press. Uh, he can be very hot-tempered and, and, you know, frankly, quick to anger. He has very clear views about foreign policy. This is giving us, I think, a window into how he operates as the person more than anyone else in the administration who is both close to the president and understands the president and understands how to stay in his good graces. And what everyone has revealed about Donald Trump going back to his days in business is that loyalty, he's even said it, is the thing he prizes above all others. And it's just fascinating to kind of see that reflected in the way that Pompeo is reacting with, as he would see it, his troops, who he is there expecting that they, you know, declare loyalty, at least ostensibly to the department. And I think now it seems like, you know, it's pretty clear where Pompeo has has expected that loyalty be placed. You know, I, I guess the other thing that I take away from this is that even after um, General McMaster left the administration and John Kelly left the administration and Jim Mattis left the administration, there were those who still thought of Mike Pompeo as a relatively safe pair of hands for American national security and foreign policy in the sense that, you know, okay, he, you know, yes, he's very political and whatever, but he knows a lot and he takes this stuff seriously. And and as you said, he has clear views. You can have a substantive conversation with him about Iran or whatever. And I think that what this set of incidents reveals so clearly is that it doesn't matter at the end of the day. Under President Donald Trump, it does not matter if you have substantive expertise or strong views or, God help us, gravitas. What matters is that the president's demand for absolute personal loyalty overrides anything you may think, anything you may see, anything you may desire. It takes precedence over all. And he has demonstrated with Mike Pompeo his ability to enforce that to the point where this man has no independent identity left. Whatever else he does for the rest of his career, 
is going to be framed by this experience, which we now all see in its ugliness. Yeah. And just to remember, you know, when he came in, when Pompeo came in after Tillerson, there was this hope, right, in the State Department that, you know, he was going to, he said he was going to bring back swagger. He was, he you well, know, got the he hiring. Could insulate the department from the president right. because he was close to the president. Right. He got this hiring freeze, you know, reversed. There was all this hope that he was going to do these things. And he said all the right things. But the problem is when push came to shove and the, the sort of loyalty and the need to keep the president on his side you know, butts up against this notion that he's going to insulate people and protect people and protect the department. It's it's clear what what won in this instance. Oh, completely. There's also this question in addition of the idea of loyalty, this question about truthfulness. And it's worth just kind of going back to this Ignatius column at the end. He talks about McKinley testifying that he, you know, a number of times went to see Pompeo and finally, when he decided to resign, this is the person who was sort of his his kind of career counselor person, said uh, the situation isn't acceptable you know, regarding the failure to support Yovanovitch. And, it, and, and Ignatius writes, Pompeo told ABC News last month that, quote, not once did McKinley, quote, say a single thing about his concerns, end quote, about Yovanovitch's treatment. By McKinley's sworn testimony, that statement was false. And then Ignatius goes on. What is character? It's difficult to define, but as NPR Scott Simon recently noted, a good short summary is the U.S. Military Academy motto, quote, a cadet will not lie, cheat, steal, or tolerate those who do. Ignatius might have mentioned but probably chose not to that Mike Pompeo is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy. Then he says we should be careful not to judge others' characters, especially in the hot box of today's Washington. But it's deeply troubling to see a powerful person such as Pompeo who is silent in the face of lies and who takes no action to protect his subordinates from wrongdoing. So it is this dual dilemma of loyalty to these people who he really is supposed to be there to protect so we can carry out a coherent policy. And then – the other part of it, standing up in the face of things that are, you know, frankly, just going out and saying things that aren't true, that are just directly contradicted under oath by the people who worked for him. I can't imagine that my Pompeo is ever going to testify to this. But even this, it's hard to imagine him trying to publicly refute at this point. Yeah. And it's it's also interesting to ask, you know, if I were a Kansas voter, is this the kind of guy, I, even if I'm a conservative, is this the kind of guy I would trust to represent me? Because it turns out he has the backbone of a jellyfish and the character of um, somebody who fails out of the military economy. TBD. Um, let's move on to let's move on to process. Been a lot of fight about process lately. Everyone's <laughs> all angry about process. Can we give a shout out to Lauren Shulman, who always says process is my Valentine? <laughs> now we know why. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> uh, Margaret, the House voted last week uh, to adopt a resolution, uh, I guess, formalizing, we could say, the impeachment investigation. Uh, notably, House Democrats had said that this was not a step that they had to take, um, but there was some political pressure to do so. And also, they needed to get the rules down for how this impeachment, which is going to play out now in public with hearings, is going to work. So kind of walk us through the highlights of this document and and how we can expect this if we think of it kind of like the grand jury phase maybe, right, of, of a possible trial. How is this going to work? Sure. So, you know, each impeachment of a president is unique. 
uh, in our history, uh, and this one is no exception. It's it is has unfolded. The process has unfolded in a unique way. So I'll just go through a few of the handholds that are actually in the resolution, and then sort of talk about what it might actually look like. Uh, first of all, it does specify that the investigations going on in six committees in the House will that are associated with the with impeachment inquiry uh, will go on. And what that says to me is the resolution is leaving open the possibility that other information from those other committees and maybe outside of the Ukraine issue may eventually or could eventually come into the sort of impeachment process. So the, the resolution is leaving that possibility open. The reason I mention that is because there are these sort of pending court cases and everything about committees getting, for example, Trump's tax returns, maybe that has something in it, which eventually gets folded in. So those all those sort of other investigations are out there and are a possibility still. The resolution is is unique in that it puts the chairman of the uh, House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, like squarely in the driver's seat for this initial set of public hearings. He gets to call open hearings uh, for the purposes of the impeachment investigation. He's going to apparently write a report with findings and recommendations that will be transmitted to the Judiciary Committee uh, in consultation with also House Foreign Affairs and House Oversight and Reform. Next, uh, it's 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 an unusual uh, structure for for public hearings. This resolution sets out a process for those public hearings that are actually not consistent with the House rules, which is one of the reasons that I think that the House actually had to vote on this because they were doing something with the structure of the hearings that's inconsistent with the current House rules, and in particular. What that is, is the chairman and the ranking member of the Intelligence Committee, so Adam Schiff and Devin Nunes, will each have 45 minutes at the beginning of each of these hearings. Uh, They can either use the 45 minutes themselves or ask staff attorneys or, you know, other staffers on the committee to do the questioning, which we saw was quite effective, actually, in the sort of last round of impeachment-related uh, investigations, which uh, Jerry Nadler did. We saw, you know, one of the the staff attorneys get up and do a very effective questioning of Corey Lewandowski. So it seems like they're going to sort of replicate that in this uh, initial set of public hearings. It also lays out sort of the rights of Republicans, of the minority, to call witnesses and obtain documents. Um, And in this regard, they sort of went back to prior impeachment proceedings and more or less mirrored what happened in in those uh, those prior impeachment proceedings, so, which is of interest um, because it actually gives them more rights than uh, they sort of do in the normal course of business in the House. Um, and last thing I'll say is the this resolution with reference to a separate document laid out the president's procedural participation in the impeachment process. And it's, again, in my view, quite sort of generous. Um, it doesn't give the president rights in the context of the Intelligence Committee set of impeachment hearings, but it does give the president procedural rights uh, to participate and ask questions and his counsel in the context of the presentation of the evidence in the Judiciary Committee, which is something that will happen after these Intelligence Committee hearings uh, later as the Judiciary Committee formulates the articles of impeachment, votes on them, and then reports them to the full House. So very interesting resolution uh, in, in my view. Um, I think it's sort of quite clear how it lays everything out. Uh, the House voted on October 31st by a vote of 232 to 196 to approve it. Um, and, you know, now they're marching forward. And next week, as you said, Shane, we're going to see the first set of open hearings, beginning with uh, these three 
career uh, foreign service officers who were also, you know, the subject of these depositions in the in the very beginning. So, Tammy, there was there was a real political pressure on Democrats to pass this as well, in part because the president, uh, through his through the White House counsel had said, essentially, we're not cooperating with any illegitimate impeachment inquiry. And so you could possibly read this as a little bit of Nancy Pelosi calling his bluff and saying, fine, we'll formally vote on it and we'll move forward from that. It hasn't really satisfied Republican demands, right? That they're saying now this whole thing was corrupt from the beginning and therefore it can never be undone. It doesn't seem though – that's obviously not blunting the momentum of the investigation. But I wonder, do you think that – that's going to be an effective play by the Republicans who will, will presumably use a lot of their time to attack the inquiry itself in addition to pursuing and questioning the witnesses. Yeah. I, I mean, we've talked a lot about, and I particularly have emphasized in a lot of our conversations, the extent to which the Trump administration is fixated on controlling the media narrative about the Trump administration. Um, The media narrative about the Mueller investigation was more important to them than the actual Mueller investigation, which is why that Bill Barr preemptive characterization of the Mueller report mattered so much to them. And, And that strategy has served them extremely well. And I think that that's the strategy that they're trying to deploy here. But what we see here is that There is a flow of facts and a story, a factual story that's coming out that is simple, clear, compelling. And so instead of the administration kind of setting a narrative or creating some framing and then pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, what we have is a a war over the narrative where the Democrats are pushing, here's the story of what happened with the president and Ukraine. And the Republicans are pushing, here's the story of the corrupt, you know, flawed, uh, secret democratic investigation of the president. And we have yet to see which narrative will win out. And that actually takes me to a question I have for you, Margaret, as you read through the rules that have been established. I mean, let's recognize first that this is a new function for the House in the context of an impeachment inquiry to be a finder of fact. In prior impeachment inquiries, there have been other finders of facts that convey those facts to the House, and then the House gets to argue about what to do with them. But what Schiff's committee has to do here is actually find facts and then be, you know, like a special counsel would transmit a report, they're transmitting a report to the Judiciary Committee. And it's clear that they would like these hearings to present those breakthrough moments about the facts of this case and that they are relying on the facts themselves to be powerful enough to continue driving public opinion. And so far, those facts have been driving public opinion in the direction of impeachment. So do you think that these rules are going to help them win the narrative war? Well, as you say, you know, this is unique in that the House Intelligence Committee is the finder of fact here. You know, in the the Clinton impeachment, it was the Star Report that formed the factual basis for everything that happened. Same with the sort of Nixon investigation. There was a special special counsel who was looking into those issues that, you know, formed a lot of the least the you know initial set of facts. And so, you know, I I just don't know. I think the challenge for Adam Schiff and the Democrats will be. Can they boil this whole thing down into 
a very small number of words that they can say over and over again to explain to Americans out there who are still persuadable, which might not be that many, that this is something that is very uh, serious for our you know, constitutional order and merits impeachment. That will be their challenge. I do think Republicans will do everything they can to sort of cloud that message and give Just throw dirt in the air. Throw dirt, give give things like a sort of a circus like atmosphere so that people sort of get annoyed with with the process. That I suspect will be their sort of main approach on this. So, you know, will Democrats have the the discipline to just keep it as simple as they possibly can and repeat the message. I think that is that is the question. That will be, into my mind, the sort of key for moving Americans out there who still have questions about this and still have to, yet to form their view on it. And this is a last thought. I mean, we've seen in some of these transcripts that have been released, there are moments where Republicans kind of go down these, you know, conspiratorial rabbit holes a little bit or off onto tangents. You know, Devin Nunes, for instance, asking Gordon Sunland, "Do you did you have any interaction with Chris Steele, you know, the author of the, of, the, of the Steele dossier?" And somehow this idea that there's a Ukrainian origin to that, and Sunland kind of gives these answers like, "I, I don't know what you're talking about." <laughs> I, uh, you know, what the? Where are you going with that? <laughs> right, right. And it's like, and it's sort of like you know we can imagine that being some of the dirt. And I think to some degree, like Rudy Giuliani sort of road tested that when he goes out on a lot of the uh, the media appearance that he goes on, and where he kind of brings in similar kind of conspiratorial elements and you know waves around depositions and things and uses lots of Ukrainian names. And you know that didn't move the public opinion in, in favor of the president, right? There's still a basic majority of maybe plurality that's actually in favor of impeachment and removal. So I do wonder if the Republicans might look at that and say, you know, we're better off questioning witnesses on, well, what's wrong with the president investigating corruption? You know, did you say anything at the time? Rather than going on these other kind of avenues. But it strikes me that if they're really going to start swapping in people like Jim Jordan and others on the committee, I think we're going to see more of the sort of, you know, the Rudy Roadshow kind of aspect. You know, I, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, do they want to be the the circus chaos machine or or do they want to actually try and make an argument? And there was that a news story that appeared that suggested a few days ago that suggested Senate Republicans are more interested in saying, so what if there was a quid pro quo? There's nothing wrong with that because they think it's it's more credible, oddly, uh, because it's so clear that there's a quid pro quo. You can't argue with the factual outlines of this story. And and so it, I agree with you. It's a choice. I don't think they can do both of those things. I think they really do have to choose one or the other. The vulnerability of the so what if there was a quid pro quo, you know, Ukraine has corruption problems. The president was just concerned about that. The problem with that is that it's so obvious here that what the president is concerned about is not corruption in Ukraine. He is using a quid pro quo not on behalf of American national interests, not on behalf of American national security, but on behalf of his personal political interests. And that is the very definition of corruption. So, I, I mean, to me, that's just a, a an idiotic tactic for Republicans to use. But, you know, I'm not a messaging guru. So let me just complicate your scenario there a little bit. I took interest in an October 3rd PBS NewsHour interview that was done with former Attorney General uh, Mukasey, uh-huh. uh, in which he made the following argument. He basically said, 
you know, what the president did in the Zelensky call was not illegal. It was not a thing of value. And the Justice Department sort of apparently opined on that. Uh, presidents use the foreign affairs power all the time, implicitly or explicitly, to help their reelection bids. The question is whether the president is asking a foreign leader to do something that is in the interest of the United States or not. Asking a foreign government to investigate potential dishonesty by a former vice president is in the interest of the United States. The fact that such a request may also serve the president's political interests is not relevant to the question of, re- of whether to impeach. Rather, if voters think this particular way the president is using his power hurts the country, that is an issue for the voters to decide at the polls. So I think they're, if, if they roll out this argument, uh, maybe, maybe it's not House Republicans, maybe it's more like Senate Republicans, maybe House Republicans sort of road test it and then Senate Republicans perfect it. I think this is the type of substantive argument, um, again, previewed by former Attorney General Mukasey, that, that will be the one that they use. That's really interesting. And I would just say, isn't that like passing the ball to the Democratic National Committee to say, OK, voters, <laughs> go unelect the president. You know, you have an elect, you have your chance coming up. So. All right. Let's uh, let's move on. I vote. We move on to object lessons. Ha-ha. Um, Margaret, you're the guest, so you get to go first. So my object lesson is going to be uh, these BuzzFeed memos, these 302s that are coming out. Um, And in particular, a couple of different aspects. One of them is that apparently there's billions of documents that will be coming from the Department of Justice that are part of Part of the Mueller investigation. Carl billions. Sagan would say billions and billions. <laughs> Literally billions. Of billions. And you know, BuzzFeed through various FOIA cases, basically court cases, is starting to get They're basically um, FOIA ninjas over there. Yeah. And they're starting to get all of these sort of interesting underlying documents, you know, emails from Steve Bannon and talking about Jared Kushner and just sort of all this kind of crazy stuff. So I am given to understand that these documents will be coming out over the next eight years. So (laughs) (laughs) to be clear, (laughs) I will not be covering them. So, so, so you're saying that the Lawfare podcast, the report, will have at least eight seasons, right, eight right. more it's years. Be like one of reporter this. left. <laughs> it's, It'll be like Carl Bernstein. Well, you know, I mean, it's just—it's sort of insane to think about. The judge said that the Justice Department had to produce like a certain number of documents each month and like spread out over. You know, it's going to take eight years. So that's kind of an interesting thing. The second thing I'll say, and then I'll stop, is that. One of, in my opinion, the most interesting thing we get from this first tranche of documents helps us draw a through line from the sort of Mueller Russia investigation through the Ukraine impeachment, which is that Manafort, Paul Manafort, early, early on with uh, Konstantin Kalimnik, a sort of Russian intelligence connected person, was like whispering in his ear about this. Manafort was sort of telling Trump early on that Ukraine was really, the you know, Ukraine government was really the bad government, not the Russians, it was really the Ukrainians. And we see in the Ukraine matters, Trump is acting on that. And, you know, and Giuliani has picked up the note now and is saying these things to the president. So it's just interesting to kind of see that the, the seeds of this mm-hmm. sort of hatred towards Ukraine uh, by the president and the seeds are in so the in the these 
documents associated with the Mueller investigation. And Paul Manning, we're trying to remind people, currently doing a seven-year prison term for laundering money that he made from Ukraine. So he's totally disinterested party in all <laughs> yeah, that. Totally. Um, so my object also is a sort of loose strand hanging off the Ukraine investigation in a way, which is that one of the one of the things that we don't yet know is what role Vice President Mike Pence played in all of this. He clearly participated in some of the White House conversation about Ukraine. But as he has done in other scandals, declaims any knowledge of anything corrupt or illegal. But today, ProPublica has a blockbuster report out about events that, you know, many people, myself included, were very troubled about at the time, but we didn't have the goods on. ProPublica went and did the digging and they've got the goods. And this is their headline, How Mike Pence's Office Meddled in Foreign Aid to Reroute Money to Favored Christian Groups. And it talks about pressure from the vice president's office to USAID, our development agency, to award money for development programs in Iraq to specific Christian organizations and to programs that would specifically benefit Christian communities in Iraq. Now, I hurry to say that Christian communities in Iraq are ancient Valuable should be preserved. Our beleaguered have been some of the worst victims of the ISIS offensive, and USAID was already doing a lot to help them. This is about how taxpayer money gets awarded in development grants. And there was a career official pushed out of her job at USAID a while ago about this. And, you know, we were all wondering what the story was behind it. Turns out the story is Vice President Pence. All right. My object is it's not precisely a book, but it's an excerpt from a book. This is an upcoming book. I don't know if it's out yet by a commentator I'd not heard of named Doug Weed. Uh, called, who, who may have been smoking a lot of his <laughs> Smoking a little bit of it. Or, or maybe his fact it's checker. It's legal now. <laughs> exactly. Penny. That explains it You think he had all. a fact checker? We were very high when we wrote this book. <laughs> uh, called Inside Trump's White House, The Real Story of His Presidency. Uh, so big, big promise there. Starts out in this excerpt from Fox News website. Uh, says a new book claims that top CIA employees have compared President Trump favorably to his predecessor, airing concerns that former Barack o- President Barack Obama's administration micromanaged intelligence matters. Now there have been complaints. Oh, oh man, you can you can hear a lot from former Obama officials about the White House's micromanagement of national security decision making. Right, right. So like, okay, okay, got it. So like, yeah, yeah, there are people who will complain about that. But then it says, the book also referred to, quote, unquote, political correctness meetings. <laughs> quote. <laughs> Next thing they said was that in the previous administration, they spent a lot of time in the White House doing nonstop PC bracket political correctness meetings. They would have a meeting every week. And at the conclusion of the meeting, there was always this suggestion, let's meet again in two weeks. <laughs> Nothing was ever resolved. Nothing was ever good enough, the book said, <laughs> quoting the White House source. They make it oh. sound like they were reading, you know, the little red book or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so listeners of the podcast will probably sus- know and might suspect that in the context of the passage I just read of nonstop PC meetings every week at the White House <laughs> and a decision to do PC meetings again might refer to principles committee as opposed to 
political correctness. <laughs> right, which is like the, the meeting is, of the relevant the people in the cabinet. Happened. Yes, the <laughs> yeah. principals get together in a committee yeah. meeting, often called a PC meeting. So this writer clearly, from a source, completely misunderstood this and thought precisely that the Obama administration was having these political correctness meetings at the White House. It's just absolutely delightful. It's um, a great picture of what conservative trash media thinks of liberals. It's also just so it's also so interesting to me too that nobody at Fox News when they posted the excerpt caught this at all. And there's there's now been an editor's note appended to the top of it that says an earlier version of this story accurately quoted the book as describing PC as standing for politically correct and characterizing certain Obama administration meetings. The author has since informed Fox News this was due to a misunderstanding between him and his source and the initials referred to principles committee. So I wonder like if, you know, DC is like the deputies committee. I wonder if it had been DC, it would have been like all of the meetings are about the District of Columbia. Statehood. Very scandalous. If only that were true. Wouldn't that be awesome? They have DCs every day in (laughs) the White House. Or isn't like DS like an abbreviation for deputy secretary? It's like deep state. Yeah. It's the deep state. All kinds of possibilities. It's so delightful. I just just love unfortunate misunderstandings. But I also painful. Mr. Weed. Painful. Buddy. Keep smoking, baby. We want to see the rest. (laughs) Well, you'll have to tune in for that next week. Hey, we'll be in the middle of an actual public impeachment hearing next week, so who knows what might happen on the podcast. Uh, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find Rational Security PC-branded merchandise. We're going to have PC yeah. hats. We should get, like, hats that say PC. We totally <laughs> should. People think it's a deep state conspiracy. Yeah, they will. Oh, wait. Actually, can I, can I read you one idea that somebody sent me, by the way? This is. A, I'm going to go ahead and give him a shout out here. This is from a listener, Tom Wyckoff. Maybe it's Wyckoff. Sorry if that's Savage Spencer name, Tom. It says merch idea. Merch idea will cost you one shout out. I'm too six e for this shirt. Oh, nice. Right? Very that nice. Good. Very lawfare. I told him I said that would sell. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Tom. All right. Very Thank rational you, Tom. security branding there. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review, preferably a nice one. But either way, it helps people find the podcast. Our audio engineers this week were Jacob Schultz and Gordon All. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Gordon Sutland, who's recorded a traditional an album of traditional Ukrainian hobo songs <laughs> called Off the Rails. Oh, <laughs> nice. Very nice. nice. Right? I like yeah. it. Had to work it in. I like it. <laughs> I don't know if Gordon Sunland's thinks that hobo music would be his thing, but maybe he's like, maybe he's contemplating life as a hobo. This is all <laughs> we'll see what's left it's for gonna him. He's going to get out of town and ride it. the rails, Gordon. Lots of lawyers' face. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sophia Yan might <clears throat> back him up on the, uh, on the spoons or something. <laughs> the washboard. Yeah, exactly. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittes and Margaret Taylor, I'm Shane Harris, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 